The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. For the third time, good morning. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it to Romans uh, chapter 11. That's where we're going to be for the majority of our day. So each week we've been talking about where we are in Romans, and each week we do that because we know that not everyone has been here for everything in the series. Um, we've been going through the book of Romans since the beginning of August, and here's, here's the real message of the book of Romans. Everyone hears the message of salvation. Everyone hears the good news, whether it's through creation, whether it's through the law, whether it's through Christians demonstrating the reality of what Jesus looks like um, to them uh, in their lives. Everyone hears this message. And strangely enough, everyone also responds. So everyone hears and everyone responds. And, And these are the two choices when we respond. We either accept the message, we hear it, we see it, we interact with it, we experience it, and we accept it. Or we reject that message. And as I've been thinking about this, um, apathy is really not, um, it's not a response. Uh, Ambivalence to the things that we hear is not a response. Feigned ignorance is not a response. See, when we act in those ways, when we hear the gospel message, when we see the gospel message, when we experience it in the lives of other people, and we choose to respond with apathy, what we're really doing is we're rejecting that message. Last week in chapter 10, we talked about how Israel has this zeal for God. They have this desire to be obedient, to seek out the reality of who God is. But Paul says it is a misplaced zeal. It's a faulty zeal. They're looking for all of the wrong things to save them, specifically through the law. Like they look to the food laws, And they look to honoring the Sabbath and they look to being circumcised or looking at all of these things because they think in them they will find salvation. But what Paul says, it is it's in their zeal over these things that they lack understanding for two things, for the way that God's at work, but also for the way that God makes people righteous. See, God doesn't make people through righteous through the keeping of the law because they can't keep the law perfect enough. And Israel has heard this message, is what Paul says. And interestingly, God moves towards them. So they hear this message, many of them reject it, and God's move toward them. And then they continue to be disobedient and rebellious. And I, as I was thinking about this again, like, I think it's really important for us to recognize and to see our sin through the lens of rebellion, It's really important for us to see our sin through the lens of disobedience. I think what what we often try and do is minimize our sin. That it's, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. God doesn't really care because because there are people who sin worse than me. Right? We tend to look at our sin and we tend to minimize it. We have this skewed idea of rebellion and what rebellion is. And I think um, I think there are lots of reasons for that. The two that the two that really come to my mind, like we think of rebellion through the eyes of the American Revolution, right? We had this this king in England who was who was making the colonies pay these taxes, 
And he was doing all of these things, forcing, Amer- forcing people in the colonies to, to, to allow their soldiers to take quarter in their homes and all of the different reasons for the American Revolution. And we look at, we look at the American Revolution within the context of like this was a noble thing for us to do, for us to push back against, against the evil British Empire. And I mean, maybe it was. I mean, I wasn't there. Right? I mean, I've heard for, um, I'll say, 40 years of my life, like I've heard a story, right? I've been presented with a narrative that the British Empire was evil and wicked, and it was noble for us to rise up against our British overlords and push back on them. Like, that's the story I've heard. So I think that's one way that we, we tend to have a skewed perception of what rebellion is. And of course, the second one is one of my favorite things to talk about, which is Star Wars. Right? We think of the noble rebels pushing back against, against the forces of, of Darth Vader and all of these kinds of things. We've been watching this show um, over the past couple months called Andor. And this guy, Cassian Andor, was this character from the Rogue One Star Wars film. And what it's doing is it's kind of going back and doing a deeper dive into his story. And we're seeing why he's a rebel. We're seeing how he joined uh, Princess Leah and that whole gang in pushing back against the evil empire. And I think if we're not careful, what we're going to do is we're going to allow the things that we engage with culturally and historically, that's going to shape the way we think about rebellion. And our sin is rebellion. And not the good kind of sin, or not the good kind of rebellion, where we're pushing back on an evil empire. What we've seen throughout this entire series, and if we were to go back through the entire Bible, what we would see is a a God who loves us. Like God's not even a benevolent dictator. God's just benevolent. God is just good. He's persistently giving us good things. And our response is to rebel against it. In glad rebellion. In glad disobedience. We see and we hear the message that, of the way that God wants us to live. And our response is to reject it. And I submit to you, you are, you are neither George Washington nor Han Solo in that situation. What you're doing is you are separating yourselves from God. And chapter 10, again, ends with these two responses. There's, there's rebellion, which is, which is typically what, what the Jewish people have done. And then there is acceptance, which is typically what the Gentiles have done, at least in this particular audience that Paul is writing to. And chapter 11 begins with a really short question and a really lengthy answer. So we're going to read verses 1 through 10 in chapter 11. And here's, here's the question. Let me actually, I'm going to read 1021. But regarding Israel, God said, All day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. Chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? I just love that. Paul's like, don't you guys know your Bible? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. 
And do you remember God's reply? No, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones whom God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and let their backs be bent forever. Well, has God rejected his people? So the answer is really in the question. By including the word his in that question, has God rejected his people? He can't reject something that's his. So he has not rejected his people. And then Paul goes on to give two examples. The first example that Paul gives is himself. Has God rejected his people? How could he? Because I am a Jew. As he says, I am a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So God is giving, Paul is giving his, he's giving his resume a little bit. He's reminding his, his Jewish hearers of who he is. Of course, God hasn't rejected the Jews because, because I'm one of them. If God rejected his people, if God rejected the Jews, then, then I'm not in. And then Paul refers to a lesson from their history. I really want to encourage you sometime this week, you'll see it in the YouVersion app um, if you're looking in there. I would really want to encourage you to go back and read 1 Kings 18 and 19. That whole story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah has this massive victory on Mount Carmel, and then he flees because, um, because the, the king is out to get him. The king's wife is out to get him, and he goes and he hides in this mountain. And he goes out before God and says this very statement. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. What I love about that story is we talked about this in our pastor review. What I love about that story is, is it starts off where Elijah's like accusing God. And God's like, okay, Elijah, we're going to do something here. Um, I want you, and I don't have the order of this down correctly, so you don't have to come up and tell me afterwards that I got it wrong. Um, there's like an earthquake, and there's a big fire, and there's a big wind. And after every one of those things, it says, but God was not in the earthquake. God wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in the wind. And then... There's this whisper, and it says that God was in that whisper. Why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah, it's interesting, he says the exact same thing. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, I imagine. He said it a little more muted, less accusatory this time. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And God's reply is this. No, there's, there's actually a remnant, Elijah. There are 7,000 other people who have never bowed the knee to Baal. See, there are many people who, 
who have heard this story of salvation. There are many people who have responded in the affirmative. And what God is doing here is he's telling them that, this, that their salvation is not defined by their work. But their salvation is defined by God's grace. And that's actually verse 6. And since it's through God's kindness and it is not by their works... For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. I wish for you that you would see that you are saved by God's grace. My hope for you is as, as we finish this um, book over the next several weeks, that you would see that God's grace is something that's free and undeserved. Not only that you would, that you would accept that, but you would relish in that. That you would not only find relish in that, but you'd be satisfied in God's work on your behalf through Jesus, his son. You'd be satisfied with that. That whatever you're trying to do to, to add to your salvation through your works, whatever you're trying to do in your morality as it compares to other people, and I just, I hope that one of the fruits of this series together is that you're going to lay that down. That you're going to rest. That you're, you will recognize your strivings as vain. And you would cast those things down. And I love verses 7 to 10. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they're looking for so earnestly. A few have the ones whom God has chosen but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God's put them into a deep sleep. He shut their eyes, closed their ears. Likewise, David says, quoting, um, quoting a psalm, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. See, these are examples of misplaced zeal. These are examples of, of receiving things from God. And I wrote at some point, since I've had this Bible, um, what's going on here is the people have been lulled to sleep. The people have this false sense of security that all is well. And what they've done is they've taken a look at their circumstances and they've seen like all of these blessings. That's the word that David uses in the psalm. They've seen all of these blessings and what they've done is, is they've thought that because they have all of these blessings, they, just must, they must be living right. God has rewarded them for their blessings. And I think sometimes we think that. And if we don't think that, we surely think the opposite, right? When we have bad circumstances, how many of us default to, I must have done something wrong? What did I do to deserve this? What have I done? See, what, what God is telling the people through Paul here is that your misplaced zeal is going to get you in trouble. Your false sense of security is going to get you in trouble. And these verses, this is not about the story I'm about to share from Scripture, but these stories remind me of, of the time of King Jeroboam II. And you can read about him in 2 Kings 14. These are also in version. There's also an Amos text that I would encourage you to take a look at sometime this week. 
But what's going on at this point in King Jeroboam's time as king is, is Israel is very powerful militarily. Their nation state is strong. And what they begin to do is they put their hope and their trust in those accomplishments. They think we're leading, we're winning. God must be happy with us because we have everything we want, which is really strange because if you remember back to Romans chapter one at the beginning of the series, having every what you want is not necessarily an indicator that you are following God. In fact, having what you want is a strong indicator that God has given you over to your sin. This is, this would have been alarming for these people to hear. These people were blinded and they were ensnared by their success. And then, then Paul does something really amazing over the next, over the rest of the chapter, um, throughout the rest of chapter 11. If we've been, if you've been paying attention for the last four chapters, we've talked about how Paul has mostly directed his attention to one specific audience over the last four chapters. Remember, there are three audiences in Romans. There's the whole church, there's the Israelites or the Jews, and then there's the Gentiles. And for the last four chapters, what Paul's been doing is he's been directing his attention to the Israelites, specifically to the Jewish audience in Rome. And if you've been paying attention, he's, he's, been, he's been raking them over the coals. He's been giving them a really hard time talking about reminding them of all the ways that they rejected God throughout history. And, the, and the, their current rejection is simply one more in a line of rejections. And, and now this, this attitude that they have is being demonstrated, like their, their desire to stick to the law is being demonstrated in the way they're treating the Gentiles as they come into the faith. What's the move of the Jewish Christians to the Gentiles? Well, you, you have to be circumcised. You have to eat our food. You have to honor the Sabbath. See, the Jewish people, the Jewish converts are so wrapped up in this. Like, this is why Paul is continuing to bring this up to them. Because it's almost as if the Jewish believers are saying, in order to be a good Christian, you have to be a good Jew. Your pathway to following Jesus is to be a good Jew. And I imagine, as, as I've been reading through this, and I imagine that if I were a Gentile in the room up to this point, I, I think I'd be feeling pretty good about myself, honestly. Listening to the way that Paul is continually speaking to the Jewish believers about all the things they're doing wrong and calling them to repentance and calling them to love and calling them to serve. If I'm a Gentile, I'm feeling pretty good. But something's about to happen. Beginning in verse 11, that is going to carry through the rest of the letter. Let's read through the end of the chapter. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? So that's to the Jews. Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. And we talked about this on Thursday night. If I'm a Gentile in the room right now, if I've really been paying attention, there's a, in the back of my brain, there's a little alarm bell starting to go off. 
Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because of the people of Israel turned because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I'm saying this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who are dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion is is given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. Here's the alarm bells. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, But remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ and you are there because you believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting you will also be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again, for God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, again, to the Gentiles, you, Gentiles, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud of themselves. Do you see how, do you see how Paul is going after their pride and their arrogance here? We've talked about this, like how Paul, can t- like he builds people up and, and just when they start to think that they are more than who they really are, he gives them truth. Some of, you, of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will only last until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now the enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves Because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gift and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God. But when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels. And God's mercy has come to you. So that they too will share in God's mercy. 
For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so that he could have mercy on everyone. See, here's, here's what's going on in this portion of the text. God is, God is reminding everyone that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a Jewish gospel. It's not a Gentile gospel. It's a gospel for everyone. See, this is, this is a gospel of inclusion. This is a good news of inclusion. Paul wants the Gentiles to know who they are in God's story. And who they are in God's story is not the main character. They are not the main character in the story. In fact, the Israelites aren't the main character of the story. They are supporting actors. The, as I think about what that means to be a supporting actor, there's this, there's this, there move, there's this movie from the Coen brothers. Maybe you've seen it. It's called Hail Caesar. Um, if you are familiar with Coen brothers movies, you know they're really wacky, ridiculous comedy. But you also know, if you're a Coen Brothers fan, that there's more to the story than some wacky comedy tale. And what's going on in this, um, in this movie, um, it takes place in the 50s, and it's a movie about a movie being made. And the movie being made is about, this, is about this Roman soldier who's at the foot of the cross, and he acknowledges that Jesus is the Lord. And the soldier's played by George Clooney. Well, there's this scene in the movie. Again, it's a movie about the filming of a movie. There's this scene in the movie where it takes place. um, They're they're filming like the scene at the cross where George Clooney's character acknowledges that that the man on the cross was God's son. So the scene kind of takes place and then they break because it's lunchtime. Right? And there's this guy going around and he has a clipboard, and he's asking everyone what they want for lunch. And if you are like a main character on the film, you get one kind of lunch. And if you are a supporting character on this film that they're making, you get another kind of lunch, like a lesser lunch. Well, the person with the clipboard walks up, walks up to the middle cross, and all you see, all you see are the feet. So this is Jesus on the cross, right? And the guy with the clipboard looks up and says, are you a main character or a supporting character? And the man on the cross, in this voice that is, that is broken, says, I, I, don't, I don't know. And it's such a poignant moment in this film. Like, who, who is the main character? What is, what is the story really about? And what Jesus is doing here, and where what Jesus is doing through Paul, what God's doing through Paul, is he's reminding the Gentiles that they're not the main character of the story. They've thought that for the last four chapters because of everything Paul said about the Jewish people in front of their presence. Did you, did you notice that word? The, 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 the way it's written. I'm saying all this, especially for you Gentiles. He's acknowledging that the Gentiles are in the room. I'm saying this, Gentiles, so you will hear all of this. And not that you'll hear it and be proud and be arrogant and think you're better than all of the Jews. 
I'm saying all this because you need to know what your role is. Last week in 1019, we read this. I will rouse your jealousy. This is when he's talking to the Jews. I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. See, the Gentiles have responded and they've come into God's kingdom. And the Jewish Christians, the Jewish believers, the Jewish converts are infuriated by it. Not because they were saved or not only because they were saved, but because they were saved the wrong way. Because the Jewish people had heard for, for generations, for centuries, that the way to be saved is through the keeping of the law. And now all of a sudden, like, the Gentiles are just walking in here like they own the place, right? They didn't have to pay like we did. They didn't have to be obedient to the law. And what Paul is telling the Gentiles that their role in the story of salvation is to be examples of God's mercy. Gentiles, this is why you're in the story. Gentiles, this is why you are in the story. This is why you are saved, to arouse jealousy in those who've rejected God. The Jews in particular. Okay, so here's the story. God's offered himself to the Jews. They've rejected him. So God turns to the Gentiles. That wasn't a new plan. That was the way it was always supposed to work. And then when the Gentiles accept this mercy, when the Gentiles accept this grace, what that's going to do is it's going to arouse this jealousy within the Jewish people. Because what, like, I don't understand, how come they're in? Why don't they have to follow all these things? I wish I didn't have to follow all these things, right? There's to arouse the jealousy. And then the second thing, God allows the Gentiles in so that they would be a living demonstration that God loves all people. wonder if you would consider these implications for us today. Are you living a life of faith and trust? How are you living your life? Are you unshakable in your faith? When hardships and realities come into your life, what's your response? I'm not saying don't be human. We're all humans. We all face hardship. We all face challenges. And yet there's a way, like there's a way to respond to hardships and realities that shows God honor. And the question is, when we're faced with those things, how, how do we respond? Do we complain? And I can look at your Facebook, so I know how you respond. Right? You can look at my Facebook. Like, how do we respond? This is real life. These aren't, just, these aren't just platitudes that we say that we're supposed to live with hope and trust because I'm a Christian and that's what I'm supposed to do. No, I'm supposed to live in hope and trust when I have a hardship or reality that comes into my life. I am not supposed to say God must be mad at me because I, this bad thing happened. See, if all we do is, is complain and are angry and bitter just like everybody else, it is going to be impossible for us to be a living demonstration of the reality of who God is. Because what's the difference? Our lives, like, our lives ought to be different. We ought to respond to the same things that everyone else goes through. And I know we think in the middle of our hardship that, that no one has it as bad as I do. I know, I know we all think that. 
But how do we respond when that happens? Are we demonstrating the reality of who God is and the hope that we have in him? And then are you demonstrating that God loves all people by dun, 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 loving all people? Like, this is how we, this is how this works. This is what, this is what the Gentiles were supposed to do. This is what the Jewish believers in Rome were supposed to do. And it's what we're supposed to do. This is the thing that's for us. We talk a lot about the Bible is not written to us, but it's for us. Well, this is for us. This is for me. This is for you. See, we demonstrate these things when we do them. And that's hard. And that's challenging. And as I've been listening, I had a conversation with Dustin about this earlier this morning. As I've been listening to the chapters 12 through 15 of this book, and he, Paul is going to light the Gentiles up. You are going to be lit up over the next four weeks. I'm just telling you. I said, I think we could just read a chapter a week and we call it a sermon. We're not going to do that. But I think we could. Like Paul, Paul is going to go after them. And he's going to go after us. He says, Gentiles, not only were you saved to be examples of God's mercy, but your salvation is not something that you should be bragging about as though you've done something to deserve it. He's doing, he's reminding the Gentiles that the only reason they're in is because of God's mercy. Not because of anything you've done. Essentially, Gentiles, your list of sins is back in chapter one. Like, I know we've been hammering the, the Jewish believers for the last four chapters. In case you forgot, you should go back and read chapter one and see what your list of sins are. And at the end of that list of sins, he says, you deserve death because of these things. Don't forget who you were. Last week, as we talked through chapter 10 in our, in our Thursday night small group, someone, someone asked this question. Why, why this long argument? Why is Paul going through chapter after chapter after chapter of eventually saying the same thing with, with very little variation? Why is Paul saying all of these things to the Jewish believers? One of the books that I've been reading for this series is called When in Romans. Clever little play on words. I love it when people ask questions that somebody else asks. Yet if Paul knows where the argument will go when he begins writing the letter, why the prolonged and complex argument? Why not say what he wants to say more directly? Paul's concern is not that most of Israel doesn't believe Jesus to be the Messiah and therefore will suffer the consequences. His concern is with those Gentile Christians who have themselves drawn that conclusion. Gentiles think that they have displaced Israel, or at the very least think that, they, that Israel's unwillingness to acknowledge Jesus as the rightful Messiah of God means that God will reject them. See, what Paul's doing is he's going after the Gentiles because the Gentiles have made the decision that now it's the Jews who aren't faithful Christians. Because they're still sticking to the law. And by their example of not following the law, they're demonstrating that they're not real believers. See, the Jewish believers weren't alone in their bad behaviors. The Gentiles were equally guilty. They're bragging about their 
inclusion in the gospel. Again, they think that they think that they've done something to deserve it. They've done something to earn it. And what Paul is telling them throughout chapter 11 is, is there are lots of Jews who are faithful and there are lots of Gentiles who are faithful. And the Jews who are out can easily be grafted right back in if they just believe. There, is not a, there are not a finite number of branches on this tree. This tree can have as many branches as those who believe. He's telling the Gentiles that God has a bigger plan for them than what they think. And then he says, and just because you're in now, don't think that you can't be ungrafted from the tree. Don't think, Gentiles, that you cannot make the same mistake that the Jewish believers have made. Now that the shoe is on the other foot, Gentiles, don't be like the Jews. Don't walk away from this salvation. So we talked about this last week in our elders meeting. You can't lose your salvation, but you can stop trusting. And if you stop trusting, you know it'll happen. You'll lose your salvation. That's what this text is telling us. There's a way for us to be ungrafted from the tree. God's not going to arbitrarily do that but I can ungraft myself. See, Paul's not out to condemn the Jews, but to arouse their jealousy in such a way that they will observe what's happening in the church. They will desire to be a part of God's movement because that's what this is about. They will desire to be a part of what God's doing and they will be regrafted right back in to the tree. And the Gentiles play a key role. And here it is. Act like Christians. That's all you got to do. Act like the things that the things that we believe as Christians, the things we believe about the work that Jesus has done in our lives, the things that we believe about what the Holy Spirit does in us and through us. Act like it's true. Live like it's true. Because it is true. It's the only story. And I think sometimes, just as we believe there are competing roles within the story, we think there are competing stories. Every other story is subordinate to the main story. And the main story is Jesus is one. And if you could get that alone through your brain, that Jesus has won. We were watching the grandparenting um, conference over the past couple days. I don't remember which... I don't remember which speaker it was, but she talked about teaching children in, I think it was a third grade Sunday school class, something like that. And they were reading the Bible and reading the Bible and reading the Bible. And this one child, I think, was always asking questions, and the teacher would always encourage the child to read the Bible. Well, the next, the following, like there was a question, read the Bible. The next week, this particular third grader comes into the class and says, hey, I've read the end and it's all going to be okay. Um, If you could grasp that, that for the Christian, it's all going to be okay. The things that the things that we get so caught up in and wrapped up in in our lives, listen, it's all going to be okay, man. 
Seriously, it's all going to be okay. And that doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. It doesn't mean it's not going to be challenging. It doesn't mean we're not going to be disappointed. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. We've been reading Romans. Have you been reading Romans? It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. So we don't have to be angry. We don't have to complain. We don't have to be bitter. See, when we do this, all Israel is going to be saved. And that doesn't mean what you think it means. What that means is the people of God, everyone who is a person of God, Jew or Gentile, the new Israel, this is, this is another thing that Paul's just sort of been unpacking as we've been reading through. Like he redefines what it means to be Israel. Israel just means people of God. And all of God's people will be saved. I love the end. It's like this little cliffhanger. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. Anybody think that's hard to understand? God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on them. Like that's really hard to understand. I don't know what to do with that. It's awesome because neither does Paul. For who can know... I'm sorry, verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us, for us to understand his decisions and his ways. See how Paul does that? He gives this really hard thing to understand, and then he talks about how, how impossible it is for to know God's wisdom. For who can know the Lord's thoughts and who knows enough to give him advice? Think about that. How much advice have you given God in your life? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. A glory to him. Amen. See, this whole section and this whole chapter and this entire letter is, is not about who's in and who's out. This entire letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome is, who is God and how does he work? And then it's up to us as, as to whether or not we want to participate in that. How do we participate in this? What, what does it mean to be included? What does this life look like? I'm going to read a few more sentences from this book. On most any reading of Romans, Paul is faced with a serious ecclesial problem. That's a Christian word, ecclesial. Anybody use ecclesial this week? Dave Robinson? Just means church. Okay, it means church. On most any reading of Romans, Paul's faced with a serious church problem concerning the relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians. He might just say, well, be nice to each other. You can have separate congregations, each of whom will witness to its own constituency, and that witness will spread the gospel. More likely, he might have said, the growing market is with Gentile Christians, so forget Israel. Instead of simply trying to patch the problem or even to find a viable practical solution, he first thinks about God. What is God up to? What has God done in Jesus? What does that teach us? 
See, what this is talking about is this phrase that, that we use here frequently. It's called unity but not uniformity. And here's, here's what that phrase means. It means we're called to be unified, not uniform. We see this principle throughout Scripture. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all pray in the exact same way. We have different translations of the Bible that we prefer. See, that's unity, not uniformity. Unity, not, not uniformity, plays itself out in an elders meeting on Monday morning where we have a disagreement about something. We have a sharp disagreement about something. But unity, not uniformity, means when we say the amen at the end of that elders meeting, the ones that don't have to jet out and go right to work, stand around and talk in that room or stand around and talk in the lobby for another 10 minutes. So it's unity, it's not uniformity. And if you want to know what this looks like in the church at Rome and what it's going to look like for us, the next five weeks are going to rock your brain. They're going to so specifically challenge the reality in Rome and so specifically challenge our own reality. But it's really simple. It's just live like you're a Christian. Demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit that dwells within you. I hope you'll come back. I hope I didn't scare you away. But seriously, I've been listening to Romans 12 to 15, and I'm like, whoa, this is intense. I want you to come back. Let's pray. God, we praise you because we are included in your salvation. We ask you, Lord, to keep us from misplaced zeal. We ask you, God, for the strength to not allow our bounty or our blessings to ensnare us or cause us to stumble. We ask you, God, that you would help us know our reality in the salvation story. We ask you, God, to keep us from arrogance and pride and that we would remember that it is by your grace alone that we are saved. Oh, how great are your riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand your decisions and your ways. For who can know your thoughts? Who knows enough to give you advice? And who has given you so much that you need to pay it back? For everything comes from you and exists by your power and is intended for your glory. All glory to you forever. Amen.